Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. As families get to work after the pandemic, the challenges of finding affordable, reliable childcare here in Michigan are becoming a flashpoint for the exodus of women from the workforce and the difficulty that employers face filling jobs. We're going to talk today with State Senator Mallory McMorrow, who's written about her own difficulties with childcare. Then we're going to discuss the plans by the Biden administration to explore the history of Native American boarding schools. That's next on Detroit Today. But now the news from NPR. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've decided to join us. With the pandemic beginning to recede, there's a lot of talk about how we all get back to work, back to the offices to work in person again. But there are a lot of people who are not going to come back to the office, and a lot of them are parents who simply don't have access to affordable and reliable childcare to be able to go to work every day. A lot of those parents are women. Millions of women, in fact, have not yet rejoined the workforce after leaving in droves during the worst of the pandemic. One of the factors that experts point to is, of course, that lack of childcare. So what's happening to address this problem? And what does the landscape look like here in Michigan? That is where we begin the conversation today. Crane's Detroit Business devoted its community forum this week to issues of child care in Michigan. And with us are two people who contributed to that project. Mallory McMorrow is a Democrat who represents Michigan's 13th State Senate District. She wrote a piece in Crane's Detroit Business with her husband, Ray Wirt, titled, Raising Kids or Having a Career Doesn't Have to Be a Binary Choice for Women. Here's how to change that. Mallory McMorrow, welcome back to Detroit Today. Hey, Stephen. Thanks for having me. Yes, always great to have you here. Also with us is Chad Livengood. He is the senior editor of Crane's Detroit Business. He has a number of pieces in the Crane's Community Forum this week about child care here in Michigan. Uh, uh, Chad, of course, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thanks for having me, Stephen. So, uh, Mallory, we're going to get to the policy side of things in a minute. But I also just want to start with the fact that you are a new mom and Ray, your husband, is a new dad. And you guys write about your own experiences trying to find childcare and figure out how to make it all work with two working parents and a newborn at home. Let's start with what that experience has been like. It's been exciting and thrilling. She is absolutely hilarious. Uh, Our daughter turned five months old yesterday, but also just exhausting. You know, we knew it was going to be a challenge even pre-pandemic, but trying to find childcare in the midst of a pandemic, um, even with the resources that we have, you know, we are very cognizant of the fact that we have flexibility and resources that most people don't. Um, And it was still just an incredibly stressful challenge. And it got down to the day before I was set to come back to Lansing, we didn't have childcare figured out yet. Wow. So you say that it's often a binary choice then for parents between having children and having a career. What does that choice look like for you guys? It is something that that weighs on me all the time. And I've told a story about when I was campaigning, there was a woman that I talked to who was probably around my mom's age who, you know, I knock on her door and she started asking me why I was running and very quickly got into asking me, do you have any kids? And how many kids do you plan on having? And when do you plan on having them? And she said to me very matter-of-factly that she couldn't vote for me because this is not a job for a mom Mm. and that she wanted her state senator to be somebody who was doing the job full-time, implying that only a man could could do that. Uh, And that is 
the reality for a lot of women. I know a lot of women, even friends who are executives or, you know, very type A career oriented people who have kind of said women can have it all, just not all at once. And that is the reality that, that you make the choice between kids and career. Um, and that's true for for most women these days. Wow. Wow. Chad, Chad Livingood, uh, give us an overview of what you're reporting is telling you about the state of child care affordability and accessibility here in Michigan, and especially what it's looking like in the wake of the end of the pandemic and the return to work for so many families. Yeah, well, I set out to sort of understand what's the current state of the infrastructure of child care. We have um, kind of a, a mixed variety of public and private sector uh, providers, nonprofit organizations. It kind of runs the gamut from public schools to for-profit uh, uh, private uh, um, preschools and and, um, and child care centers. And then we also, you know, we have a huge system of, of uh, up pairs and people who are uh, nannies, and and then there's an unlicensed system too that we don't really have any real grasp of out there. Where there's just, you know, the lady down the street takes care of one child or maybe two. Um, and so it is really kind of across the board. And just to give you a kind of a sense of where things are, um, between May of 2019 and the beginning of this month, there are 671 fewer licensed child care providers in Michigan uh, now. Um, the overall net capacity of child care providers is down 816 seats, uh, which is kind of a deceiving number because in Oakland County, they, they, they count 2,500 more seats. And in Wayne County, we have almost 2,800 fewer seats and 44 fewer child providers than from two years ago. Um, so I went and talked to some of the, child, the private sector child providers to understand just what is what's what what besides the labor issue, which is a huge issue. You have people who get paid 11, 12, 13 dollars an hour starting wages. You can obviously make more money, uh, you know, flipping uh, Whoppers at, at Burger King these days uh, than those wages. And um, besides that, what else is sort of uh, nipping away at your business model to make this all work? And a common issue that uh, a lot of providers run into is, one, the child care subsidy that the state gives for low-income families. Um, They've argued for years that this is just not enough. Now, Governor Whitmer's new proposal would boost that subsidy, uh, the payment to, to, to the providers by 20%. And then the other issue uh, comes around with the state's uh, publicly funded um, preschool program called Great Start Readiness, uh, which is a, a program for four-year-olds, um, families uh, earning up, families of four earning up to $64,000, can get their children into this free preschool. Uh, and there's been a, a very, very methodical uh, rapid uh, expansion in recent years, back in the Snyder years in 2014, 2015. We had 21,000 uh, four-year-olds uh, that uh, I believe Bridge Magazine uh, labeled them the, um, the red shirt uh, four-year-olds because they were eligible, uh, but they couldn't get to, to preschool. And, and so the state funded transportation for for four-year-olds to to get bused to a lot of these preschool programs. What's happened with some of these private providers is that um, the the funding is split up. Basically, 70% goes to public schools and 30% can go to a private provider. And the private providers say that this is basically uh, crimping their their, their share of the market and also um, their uh, customer base, essentially. So, and then they find the program to be very bureaucratic and, and, and a lot of requirements that is not as flexible as some of these uh, companies uh, operate at. And so they, they say this is really deteriorating uh, some of the infrastructure for the entire gamut uh, of, uh, because it, it's a lot less costly to uh, care for, educate a four-year-old than it is to care for babies and toddlers. You just require more more adult hands. And so um, there's sort of this complex, you know, wide range of issues here, Stephen. But this is this is one that I kind of zeroed in on this week in, in Cranes. Uh, so, Mallory, you're, you're a parent who's struggling with this, but you're also a state legislator. And you just heard 
Chad, describing what some of the landscape looks like and what some of the policy landscape looks like. Uh, tell me how you, as a lawmaker, are looking at this issue and, and seeing the challenges that you guys face uh, trying to, to, to manage this, but also what opportunities might exist to make it better for parents. Yeah, you know, I, I read Chad's piece and I've been thinking about it a lot um, over the past few days. And if I had the ability to travel back in time to a time in our country before we guaranteed public education, because I think this is, there's, there's a parallel here, right, that we now guarantee every child in the United States access to public education, and that is just assumed. But we still have private schools for those who wish to send their child to to private school and how that works out. Um, it's a challenge for us in the legislature to figure out how, what these holes are, how we fill in these holes and make sure that, number one, that there is a child care option for everybody. Because even thinking about the challenges of, of, you know, maybe some of the private providers being squeezed right now, when I talk to neighbors there just aren't enough options. There was, you know, kind of panic in a community Facebook page uh, last week when a child care provider announced abruptly that they were closing and just how many parents were scrambling to find another option and find another option very quickly. Um, so I think that's the challenge where we want to guarantee child care for every child, um, guarantee the ability for parents to not have to choose between work and staying home with their child. Um, but but I also don't think we want to avoid the unintended consequences of, of many of these smaller providers who have been filling this need for so long, not driving them out of business either. Hmm. I'm talking with State Senator Mallory McMorrow, who's a Democrat, who represents Michigan's 13th State Senate District. Also with us is Chad Livengood. He's the senior editor of Crane's Detroit Business. Uh, they both have written in this week's Cranes Community Forum about child care here in Michigan, the challenges that we have making sure that families who need to go to work, two-parent homes, one-parent homes, uh, who need to go to work can find good places for their children to, to stay during the day while they're in the office. It is an increasing challenge in the wake of the pandemic. We're seeing lots and lots of women in particular opt out of the return to the workplace because of the child care issue. Uh, we're talking about what could be done. What are the opportunities here in Michigan from a policy perspective in particular to make things better? We want to hear from you, the listeners, during this segment as well. What are your experiences trying to find good, affordable child care here in Michigan? Have you had to make the choice between having children and having a career? And how did you navigate that choice? We especially want to hear from you if you work in the child care industry. What does this all look like from your perspective? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. 1019. You can also go to Facebook and to Twitter and put comments there, and uh, we'll try to include you that way. Let's start with Eric in Plymouth. Eric, welcome to the show. Hi, Stephen. Thanks for having me. Uh -huh. A couple points I want to make is I live in Plymouth, and our daycare costs more than our mortgage. And that's everything. That's taxes. That's, it's not just the mortgage payment. My goodness. So if we had two children, it would be double that. And also, if we want to have a night out or if we, you know, our daycare is closed, just for us to find a kid in the neighborhood to watch our three-year-old, we have to pay a minimum of $10 an hour, and that's $2.75 more than minimum wage. So I don't know how other, you know, we're, we're blessed. I mean, we, we both have pretty good jobs, but I don't know how other families do it. And one of, the, one of the things that's ironic about this is that the Republican side of our government wants people to have more kids, specifically Americans. And a lot of these liberal policies that are being proposed would do just that, things like universal child care, paid paternity and maternity leave, free college, and things like that. So I just wanted to share a perspective from a family in Plymouth that's making it, but um, that has sympathy for those who aren't fortunate as we are. Yeah. Yeah. Eric, I really appreciate the call and you're sharing your experience. I mean, just that, that one statement that you're paying more for child care than you are for your mortgage, I think is something that anybody who has either a house or a child can can understand and, and kind of relate to the struggle there. Uh, Senator McMorrow, talk about what, what could happen for relief 
for families uh, like Eric's. Yeah, I mean, I think that it has to be a multi-pronged approach. And when the the stories and cranes hit um, over the weekend, seeing a story on Twitter from a teacher in Ann Arbor who says that one of her colleagues actually took out a second mortgage to move her parents here from another state so that she could have her parents around to watch her kids because that was more affordable for her than childcare. Um, so, you know, it, it is a real issue. There are people who need that multi-generational family around. And I've talked to even colleagues um, of of my own now who say that's the only way they're able to do this. Um, So I think we need to have government-backed, guaranteed childcare, whether that is funding that you can take to a private child care provider um, or to pay for a nanny or a babysitter. Because I think uh, the caller pointed out that, you know, most daycare centers have very strict traditional work hours. And if you are late picking your child up, some charge you by the minute for that. And that doesn't afford a parent a night out, um, a just time to take a break. So I think we have to get more flexible. I would love to see the state um, pursue funding uh, kind of startups or grants for um, companies who are thinking about this differently, who maybe there is a new model that is more flexible to pair childcare providers with parents, um, many who don't work traditional schedules anymore. So, you know, I think we have to start with agreeing that we want to guarantee everybody access to childcare. And then once we agree on that, because I think that opens up the door to more people wanting to have kids, mm-hmm. we, we go from there and figure out what that looks like in a way that is flexible for everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's go back to the phones quickly. Ron in West Bloomfield, you're up next. What's on your mind? Good morning. Well, I'll tell you, for me, what's on my mind is the fact that I'm a small business employer and in life me i'm having trouble filling positions because there's no reliable child care for families and so what that means is that i've lost probably about ten to twenty thousand dollars because a parent does not have you know reliable child care and it's really frustrating for me i don't know if government is the answer uh, Ron, I, I certainly appreciate the call, and it's great to hear from a business owner about that side of, of this challenge, of this issue. Uh, you know, uh, Mallory, it seems to me that, that you do have this, this business incentive, I suppose, to try to make sure that, that people have childcare so that they can actually go work at those businesses. Is there an opportunity, though, to, to I guess, marry that need uh, with the policy imperative in a way that maybe, uh, you know, helps employers who provide child care, maybe helps employers who create child care pools or, or things like that, that where, where they're working together to make sure that their employees don't have to worry about their children during the day. I mean, is that, is that an opportunity that uh, we ought to be focused on? Absolutely. I think it has to be. And there was a report yesterday uh, that, that I think Michigan Works put together that 130,000 women in Oakland County have permanently left the workforce. So thinking about small business owners who are trying to attract talent, that is a significant number of workers who have just left Oakland County um, permanently in the workforce and don't plan on coming back because they don't see a way to make it work. On the other end, small business owners that I talk to say, I would love to provide paid leave. I would love to provide childcare, but I can't make it work. Um, I'm just barely getting by as it is. So I think when we think about, is there a government-backed program that can help support these small businesses who offer these programs, I think that is a great way to marry all of these things and, and, and enable every business, regardless of your size, to be able to offer childcare and paid leave as an incentive to attract the best workers possible. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation. I want to thank Senator Mallory McMorrow for joining us. I know, Senator, you have another engagement you've got to run off to, but we really appreciate the time you gave us today. Thanks, everybody. Have a great one. Okay, when we come back, we're going to continue with Chad Live and Good, and we will continue with more of your calls and social media comments. You want to join the program, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today.
news, music, culture, and community. Every day on 1019 WDET. Detroit's NPR station. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest right now is Chad Livengood. He is a senior editor at Cranes Detroit Business. Uh, he has several pieces in this week's Cranes Community Forum about child care here in Michigan, the challenges that we have making sure that people who need to go to work every day have a place that's safe, and affordable, and reliable to keep their kids. We're seeing as people get back to work after the pandemic, a lot of those challenges come into focus and a lot of people deciding, hey, I'm just going to leave the workforce rather than have to make this kind of uh, difficult choice uh, about what to do with my children. Uh, as always, we want to hear from you about what your experiences are uh, in this uh, issue. Uh, are you somebody who is trying to get back to work and can't find reliable child care? Are you somebody who is an employer who's trying to get your employees back to work and finding that difficult because they can't find a place to keep their children? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to uh, Facebook and Twitter and put comments there, and we'll work you into the conversation. Before we get back to listeners, Chad, I want to talk briefly with you about what's going on in Ann Arbor, which has a particular uh, issue kind of roiling around uh, the child care question. Yeah, um, we're talking a lot about uh, uh, infants, babies, uh, uh, and toddlers and three-year-olds and four-year-olds, but uh, Ann Arbor uh, has, a, the public school district there has abruptly canceled their after-school and before-school care. They have in-school child care, uh, it's commonly known as latchkey. Um, most schools have this, although Detroit Public Schools doesn't uh, on any kind of wide-scale um, uh, use, but uh, in Ann Arbor, it's, uh, it's really um, kind of seen as essential for Two-family, high-income family, family, uh, family two-worker, two two-working parents uh, in a family, um, or if you're a single parent, it's seen as really, really essential. And and so the school district canceled it because they said initially that um, you know that because of COVID restrictions that they wouldn't be able to uh, ha- you know hold these sort of large group um, uh, after-school kids in the gym, basically or cafeteria. Uh, settings, and then the other issue is 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 labor, and um, you know, we talked about earlier. I mean, that, that median income, uh, median wage right now in Michigan for a childcare worker is eleven sixty one an hour, and and so simply what the Ann Arbor found was that there's just they couldn't recruit people to come back for these part time jobs um, at you know the traditionally lower wages that they are, and and so they just decided they're going to cancel this program altogether and. And it has really uh, caused a lot of controversy in in Ann Arbor. Uh, you got a lot of parents that are that are scrambling for options. Um, and I featured a couple of different families, kind of to understand, just just to sort of show, um, maybe show employers as much as anything, just how how vital these things are. If you need to basically be at work by 9 a.m. and your kids start school at 9 a.m., well, you need to drop your kid off. Uh, at 8:30, um, and basically, with the the Lashkey program, provides 15 to 20 minutes of coverage. And a lot of these Lashkey programs, my my daughter's in in, in school in uh, in St. Clair Shores. Um, it's like 3.75 an hour or something along that lines. It's really dirt cheap, but it is like essential 15 20 minutes to make everything work. And for a lot of parents, that this is how the trains move on time every day. And uh, I featured a family that uh, the, the mom is a, is a is a nurse practitioner in Brownstown Township, and the father works uh, in finance at a food distributor in Detroit. They both got commutes into well into Wayne County, uh, and they have to drop their three kids off at at um, at latchkey child before care in order to make it all kind of work and this goes away and their whole dynamic uh kind of gets upended i had another family a, a mother has has a son with epilepsy can't leave the son the boy alone um so can't just have him get on the bus by himself 
And so, you know, really dependent on that 30 minutes of coverage in order to make it to her job on time. And, and so on and so on. There's just a lot of examples where people are trying to figure out how to, uh, how to do this. They're also coming out of the pandemic where employers have been pretty flexible. A lot of employers, unless you have a, you know, a, a um, job that was in person, you're a essential worker, you're a nurse or something. Um, a lot of folks who have worked from home now for 15, 16 months, you know, there, there's, a, there's a lot of guilt in, 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 in your careers and in, in, in your, your um, you know, your employer-employee relationship uh, that people are trying to basically sort of reconcile, make sure that they're, you know, showing up and being in their desk now uh, as they're sort of required or they're going to be required as a lot of most of businesses are going to have some return to work in person by September. So it's really kind of Ann Arbor is really an interesting thing to sort of watch right now because this is a community with vast resources um, and, uh, you know, one of the wealthiest, uh, most educated communities in mm-hmm. Michigan. And if they can't make this work, you kind of have to wonder how uh, how it could work in any any community with, without the resources of Ann Arbor. Yeah. 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones, as always. Uh, I want to read some social media comments that we've gotten. Um, uh, let's start here with Emily on Twitter, who says it's been a real struggle to find quality, reliable, and affordable child care. After two full months of looking in the Oakland County area, we've determined we can pick two of those, but certainly can't have all three. Uh, Steph on Twitter says it's been a real struggle to find quality. Uh, I'm sorry, that's, a, that's the same comment. Uh, Big Neo on Twitter says, I work from 8 to 12 hours a day at my day job and then perform rideshare to pay for the $400 per week childcare for my two little girls. Childcare is the highest monthly bill I have. Universal childcare would be a godsend. Um, let's go to Miriam in Livonia. Miriam, welcome to the show. Hi. Hi, Stephen. This is an honor to be on your program. Oh, thank I'm you. Speaking from experience, I'm a sister of a developmentally disabled adult who for the past 30 years has been able to live in apartments or a home of his own thanks to the dedicated, hardworking, loving staff who are receiving abysmally low wages. And many of the staff have children, most of them have children, and they can barely make ends meet, let alone find great child care for their own children on the low wages that they're allotted, even by the best of the agencies. And then, in this situation, many of them have to work double shifts, so we're constantly losing wonderful workers in the field of care of developmentally disabled people. And so I wanted to speak to the need for a total human infrastructure program that this need for elder care, care for children, and developmentally disabled people is all linked. Yeah. Uh, Miriam, that's a really great point, uh, that that this isn't an issue that stands in isolation. Uh, Chad Livengood, talk about the ways that... There are tentacles that uh, stretch from this issue to other things that we're talking about right now. Yeah, I mean, this is wrapped up in in all sorts of problems we've seen in our society right now coming out of the pandemic um, and and just how um, how dependent we are on these uh, on these uh, systems of care, you know, and and how, you know, our our economy kind of, you know, really depends on this. In order for people to work, and and we have major labor shortages in multiple sectors. Um, again, we we haven't even really scratched the surface here on this wage issue. Um, you can you know the government can expand you know preschool programs and child and child care programs and all that, but if they can't get people to do the work, none of the, all of this is for naught. And 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 uh, I think that that's you know like I said that's showing up in Ann Arbor uh, right now. Um, Although I would say that, you know, there needs to be some little more, uh, you know, uh, search by some of these school districts into looking at whether the, the private sector can come in here and do some of this work. Uh, that clearly schools are overwhelmed with just trying to run schools. And, and that, that's one reason you, you get, you gather from Ann Arbor is they just want to be out of this, uh, additional business, essentially. But, um, but this business is kind of what makes Ann Arbor tick. 
um, and um, and you don't you don't get the kind of you know high income uh, and tax uh, value that supports those schools without people who families who have two two working parents, and that's mm-hmm. just the reality that uh, that is out there now. And and then and then the dynamic is completely different in Detroit uh, and other cities uh, you know, of, of less means and and, uh, and higher higher um, percentages of uh, poverty, and and so. Um, and like we, Mallory McMorrow mentioned earlier, a lot of parents don't work the same kind of nine to five schedules, you know. And so um, there's not a child care out there, a uh, child care provider out there that's open, uh, at, you know, overnight so that someone can go work at the casino uh, downtown. So that's there's you know, those families have to make different decisions every day. And, and, and um, that that affects your uh, economic uh, mobility as well. I mean, there's so many aspects uh, where childcare is is so essential in our in our society, um, and and for the longest time we haven't really given it enough uh, emphasis and, yeah, and attention. Yeah. Okay, Chad Livengood, senior editor at Crane's Detroit Business. Always great to have you here on Detroit Today. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Stephen. We're going to take another quick break, and when we come back, we are going to talk about the Biden administration committing to investigate the United States' really dark history around Native American boarding schools. Really interesting conversation about a subject that a lot of people aren't terribly familiar with. It's coming up next. Stay with us for more Detroit Today. Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Remember that you can join the WDET Book Club right now. This summer, we are reading the U.S. Constitution and reading it for the ways in which it pushes for equality and in the other ways in which it has frustrated equality for many Americans. We want to invite you to join in these discussions about what the founders intended and how the Constitution impacts everything from civil rights to partisan politics. You can get a free copy of the Constitution when you sign up to join the WDET Book Club either at WDET.org or at the WDET Book Club page on Facebook. Uh, Then stay tuned, of course, all summer for news, music, and conversations about the document that was written to guide our democracy. You can find more information at WDET.org slash Constitution. Okay, last week, U.S. Interior Secretary Deb Holland said, we must shed light on the unspoken traumas of the past, no matter how hard it will be. And with that, she announced that her department will launch what's being called the Federal Indian Boarding School Initiative. The announcement follows the May discovery of the remains of 215 students at residential school in Canada, and then the chilling discovery of hundreds of additional remains just days after Holland's announcement. The U.S. commitment to this difficult investigation marks a significant shift in U.S. policy when it comes to taking responsibility and some accountability for the atrocities that were committed against the indigenous peoples of this land. Here to talk with me more about this announcement and the implications of this effort, both nationally and here in Michigan, are two people who are pretty closely following this issue. Antonia Gonzalez is an anchor and producer for National Native News. Uh, Antonia, welcome to Detroit Today. Hello. And also with us is uh, Sierra Clark, who is an Adawa Anishinaabe Indigenous Affairs reporter with the Traverse City Record Eagle CRE and Report for America Corps member. She's also the co-founder for Michigaming Journalism Project and co-editor for Indigenizing the News. She recently wrote a piece on this issue in Michigan titled Remains Discovered at Canadian Boarding School Spurs calls for investigations in Michigan. Sierra Clark, welcome to Detroit today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, yeah. So, Antonia, 
Uh, I think a lot of people don't entirely know the history of these boarding schools. Can you give us just a thumbnail of the background of what these are and why they have such a dark legacy? So in the United States, uh, Indian boarding schools were established in the 1800s to assimilate children. And um, hundreds of thousands of children were taken away from their homes and put in these boarding schools. And it's a history that maybe a lot of the general public do not know about. But for indigenous people um, across the United States and Canada, it's a history we're really familiar with because it's generational. We've grown up hearing these stories from members of our family, how they were uh forcibly removed and taken to these schools. Um, and it was very traumatic. Uh, some of our family members talk about these days and some don't. And it's understandable about how this has impacted um, our people uh, across the country and how some people want to talk about it and how some people don't. And I think with this news this week or last week with uh, Secretary Holland, um, it goes to show one that representation matters, that having an indigenous person in the um, administration who knows the history, who's native, whose family has been through similar things is finally bringing to light um, what advocates of boarding schools, uh, former students, um, family members have been calling for for years is an investigation and acknowledgement and also calling for an apology um, from not only the U.S. government, but also uh, different do- uh, denominations um, in taking responsibility for what happened to our people. So give us a sense of the damage that was done to Native communities across the continent from these practices. I mean, this is an unprecedented step toward accountability by, by the federal government. But but I'm really wondering if you can give us an idea of how deeply this has affected Native communities. Well, for those who love to look at data, I mean, just look at all of the different social issues that Indigenous communities across the United States and Canada and really around the world struggle with um, that are impacts from, you know, intergenerational trauma. Native people in the United States have some of the highest, if not the highest, suicide rates. Um, We have a lot of different uh, issues when it comes to um, looking at just the health and welfare of our people and how that trauma has impacted uh, daily lives and trickled down through our communities. Um, I mean, I remember hearing stories from my own family of children being taken away, uh, running home, um, you know, hair being cut, not being able to talk your indigenous language, um, abuse. There's there's a lot of stories about abuse that happened at these schools. And, um, you know, when you come home, how are you dealing with that? There was no program set up to for children to deal with what they went through in, in um, these Indian boarding schools. And I think that that, you know, looking at just some of the, the issues that tribal communities face, it's definitely an impact of intergenerational trauma. Mm-hmm. So, Sierra, you've been following this issue here in Michigan. Talk about how indigenous communities in our state have been responding to this news about uh, the remains of the Native children in Canada and this announcement by the federal government that it is going to try to hold itself accountable for what happened. So what I've been hearing um, in the communities uh, the last couple of weeks is what some tribal leaders are calling an open secret. Um, As mentioned before, this is very well known in the Indigenous communities. Um, A lot of trauma and pain. Um, and from what I've been seeing, um, talking to individuals within the community um, is they want open investigations for the residential boarding schools that operated here in Michigan. We know that there are um, three that were federally funded uh, in Berga, Michigan, in Mount uh Mount Pleasant, Michigan, and then in Harbor Springs. Um, and so they're, they're calling for an open investigation of not only um, on the residential properties, but also the uh, records to be opened, uh, the names of the children to be opened, and also uh, the names of those who worked there to be opened. And um, <clears throat> I have been told by many sources that it is not um, at a point for justice right now. It's more... Um, we need the community to heal. And, and in order to heal, um, we have to take that first step. 
Um, talk about whether you think the state might take some initiative to work with tribal elders and leaders to begin investigations and reconciliation around the things that happen here in Michigan. So far, um, from what I've, I've seen and what I've heard from sources, the state has not been open. Um, historically, uh, tribes have uh, tried to do their own investigations, but because the properties are still owned um, either by um, local municipals or, or um, churches, um, they've come to a dead end. Um, so with the news of uh, Interior Secretary, Secretary Interior um, Deb Holland, um, they're hoping that this will kind of force them into um, opening and up. Hmm. Uh, we're talking about the dark history of Native American boarding schools here in the United States and in uh, other parts of North America and the federal government's decision to try to investigate and hold accountable uh, some of the people and some of the institutions that were responsible for the things that happened. Uh, we want to hear from you as well during this conversation. Are you following this story about the Native American boarding schools? Uh, are you hopeful about what it signals that we have an indigenous public official leading the effort to look at a dark part of our nation's history? And what do you think our nation should be doing when it comes to facilitating healing the kinds of trauma that was inflicted on the Native people of this continent? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today and uh, we'll try to work you into the conversation. This is a really important conversation, I think, because uh, when we talk about equality on Detroit Today, which we do a lot, we talk about equity and fairness and justice, uh, we mean that in the global sense. Uh, we focus a lot on on race. We focus a fair amount on gender and uh, gender identity and sexual identity and things like that. We don't often, or as often, I should say, get a chance to talk about what these issues mean to Native peoples here uh, in, in the United States and in North America. And so uh, just the idea of having uh, a public official in the federal government bring attention to this issue uh, is huge and is an opportunity for us uh, to really talk about these things. So again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Uh, and you can go to Facebook or Twitter and put comments there and we'll try to work you in uh, uh, that way. Uh, Antonia, I wonder if you're hopeful that this acknowledgement of the intergenerational impact of these boarding schools might promote some emotional healing uh, in Native communities. So some of the um, former students that I've talked to in recent weeks following um, the remains found in Canada and also a Secretary Holland's announcement are hopeful. Um, they say that's a sigh of, sign of relief, a sigh of relief um, just for somebody in the federal government to acknowledge what they've been advocating for for years. Um, I mean, we've been reporting on truth and reconciliation in Canada for more than 15 years, um, if not longer, and work that's been going on there to not only acknowledge, apologize, and then compensate um, for Indian residential schools there in Canada. So former students here are... Um, have some relief, but also they want to see healing be a part of um, the U.S. initiative. Um, one student I talked to from Alaska talked about just early years and how traumatic it was and um, not being able to talk about what happened to him for years and just going down and following a life path that wasn't healthy. And it wasn't until his later years when he became he started talking about his um, time in boarding school and then um, started becoming an advocate and thinking about and understanding what happened to him, uh, dealing with anger, um, people deal with shame, but also looking at forgiveness, not only forgiveness for oppressors, but forgiveness for, um, you know, what they did and what they went through um, for themselves. So I think that it's a first step. There's a lot of work. There's a lot of things that need to 
to happen. And also um, looking when the investigation uncovers um, repatriation, repa repatriate, uh, repatriating a lot of these remains of uh, children who died at boarding school. Um, those are some things we've also been reporting on for years, not only in Canada, but here at the United, in the U.S. A lot uh, work has underway at Carlisle Indian School. Um, it was recently announced that some remains are going back uh, uh, from found uh, going back to Aleut community um, and also the uh, uh, Lakota, I believe it's a Lakota community in South Dakota that some remains are going to be going back to. So there's a lot of different um, things going on when we're we're looking at this initiative and and even seeing some things that may be mirrored from uh, work in Canada. Hmm. Uh, again, three one three five seven seven. 1019 is the number here on the phones. We've got a lot of folks who want to chime in on this issue. Let's start with Hadassah Green Sky here in Detroit. Hadassah, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you for having me on the air. Mm -hmm. um, I am actually a Little Traverse Bay Band Ogawa, and I live in Detroit, and I am uh, about 26 years old. And I could say that every person that's Native that I know and every person that's Native that you know is connected to the residential schools. Mm -hmm. You know, somehow one family member or another was in these residential schools. And you'd be surprised how many people do not know that the residential schools were even happening. And so what I'd like to see at the very minimum would to see um, education in the public school system because Native American history pretty much stopped getting taught about after 1900. And that's when a lot of these residential schools were happening. They need to just be really truthful about it and just educate people because the reality is that we all know about the Holocaust, but we don't know about these residential schools. And the thing is, Hitler actually took um, inspiration from our boarding schools and the way that we would bury children and, and incinerate them and just totally erase them of their culture. They didn't know that Hitler took that idea and used it on the Jewish people. He was inspired by the United States. By what Canada. was that here? Yeah, Hadassah, I really appreciate the call and uh, and that perspective. And and when you hear her talk about how anyone you know who's native has some connection to the history of these schools. It's really, I mean, it, it, the hair kind of stood up on the, the back of my neck there, uh, Antonia, when she was talking about that. Yeah, we, like I said earlier, um, I've heard lots of stories from my family. Um, we're from, we're Navajo, from the Navajo uh, Nation in Arizona, on the Arizona side of the reservation, and just how uh, family members were taken and, you know, to Utah to go to boarding school. And also the fact that, you know, missionaries came and uh, changed names, um, took away native names and, um, you know, gave you uh, Western names. Um, in Alaska, I've, I've interviewed students who were called numbers. They didn't even have names. Mm -hmm. And so I can't even comprehend as a mother, you know, somebody yeah. taking my own children away and they don't even have a name that they're called yeah. number 77 um, right. come get your clothes i mean and and that's just you know that's just not even that's really just one of you know one of very traumatic events that happened to our people our families our you know sure. that we're all connected like the caller said yeah. Um, I just wanted to add yeah, ahead, one thing Sierra. that um, it is really important for um, listeners to be aware that this is a living history. Um, this isn't something that happened um, in the past. Um, we have people alive today that are in the same you know age group as I am. I'm only 31 that experience these schools. In the state of Michigan, the last um, boarding school to close was Holy Child in Harbor Springs, and that closed in 1983. Um, the last boarding school to close and, um, uh, was in 1996. So this isn't something that happened a long time ago, and, and um, 
we're just, you know, now becoming aware of it. This is something that um, is continuing to affect people alive today and therefore pass on that generational trauma, that generational pain um, to the the community and their family. Yeah. Yeah. Hadassah, again, thanks so much for the call and that that really uh, personal perspective on this issue. Okay, I wish we could get to some of the other calls that we have, but we are out of time. So I want to thank Antonia Gonzalez, who's anchor and producer for National Native News, for joining us. Antonia, it was great to have you here on Detroit Today. Thank you. And Sierra Clark of the Traverse mm-hmm. City Record Eagle. It was great to have you here as well. Yeah, miigwech. Thank you. Okay, that's going to do it for us today. Tune in tomorrow when I'm going to talk with Zach Stanton of Politico about his look at Oakland County in the 2020 election and what it says about the ways that Republicans are alienating longtime GOP voters in suburban America. Think about the things that happened during that uh, 2020 November election and how different they looked from 2016. That's going to be a really interesting conversation. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.